You are a warrior. Three twenty one status. What kind of vehicle is it? You are the very best your nation has to offer. Nine one one. Multiple shots fired. They're asking you to lead. Five. We need a Bearcat. It's up to us. So one thirty three. I need somebody that's got a visual on where the shooter is. You must be sound in mind, body, and spirit. Forty. Where's the officer down? I have a rescue helicopter that wants to land and help. This is the podcast that will make you the one. The one that will bring everyone back. Trouble, we have shot fired, shot fired. Give me back up now. Because no one else is coming. We're going to have an officer shot. An officer shot. 100 block of East Street. Suspect is down. Suspect is down. This is the squad room. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Squadron, the podcast that helps you, the modern warrior, achieve your full potential. This show is about being the better modern warrior. How can you be the leader this world needs you to be and how to be the best version of yourself possible every day? You must understand that as a first responder, you are a leader. It is my firm belief that we are the absolute best our nation has to offer and that we must burden ourselves with leading others we are to save our country. We are our nation's modern warrior. Before we get to the interview, I want to remind you that you can get more information on this episode, including show notes and links by going to thesquadroom.net. You can also subscribe on iTunes and Stitcher and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at The Squadroom. Our guest today is a man who may be known to many of you. A uh, man who uh, I've been following for a long time, someone who has inspired me to do better work, who's inspired me to uh, expand my own horizons. Uh, Andy Stumpf is our guest today. I learned of Andy a uh, long time ago from, of all things, a little promotional CrossFit video. But as I dug into Andy's blog, Confessions of an Idiot, and his social media, and some of his ethos, I learned a lot more about him. Andy is many things. And he is probably the definition of a modern renaissance man. And uh, that gets overused a lot, but I think with Andy that may exactly be the case. Andy started his career out of high school in the Navy and, uh, and went into the SEAL teams. And from there became a lieutenant in DevGrew, uh, better known as SEAL Team 6. Andy was a BUDS instructor, and some of his lessons he talks about on our show today were the lessons he learned by teaching and mentoring others. Andy is also uh, an adrenaline junkie. Um, I don't know if he would use those words, but somebody who uh, holds two world records in the wingsuit, the crazy squirrel suit that you, uh, well, maybe not you or me, but he puts on and jumps off of perfectly stable uh, buildings and structures and mountains and out of airplanes and uh, drops to the earth. Andy's got the dis, uh, records for longest horizontal flight in a wingsuit and highest altitude jumped in a wingsuit. Pretty fascinating guy. And uh, because of his history in the teams, because of his connection with CrossFit, he's uh, one of John Wellborn's best friends. John was on the show, and I take uh, heed to whatever John has to say. And when John says that you got to talk to Andy, well, then you talk to Andy. Uh, he provides, Andy is um, a, a hyper-articulate guy and a very unique perspectives. Um, his own podcast, Cleared Hot, is shooting up the charts of uh, of iTunes. And he's doing amazingly uh, well, and we congratulate him for that. Uh, couldn't happen to a nicer guy, someone who understands the trials and tribulations of law enforcement, the struggles we go through, and the mindset that's needed to be successful. So take a listen to this episode, this interview with Andy Stumpf, and check out the show notes at thesquadroom.net slash episode 80, 80, and you can learn more about him. You can get links to his uh, program, uh, his blog, his podcast, and some of his other work. So here we are with Andy Stumpf. Andy Stumpf, welcome to the Squad Room. Thanks, man. Uh, I'm, I'm really uh, honored to have you here. You're, uh, my first introduction to you was that Are You Rogue video you, you did a couple years ago through CrossFit. I'd say that was more than a couple. I think we're, we're edging up to five, maybe six years on that bad boy. It was probably, it was probably around then. I'm a li- I was a little late to the CrossFit game, but uh, 
that's where I first saw that. And I'm, and I'm going, you know, I'm, I did that thing where I, I started CrossFit and I totally like hit it like smack and started watching everything I could and anything rogue. And I'm running around in the rogue shirts still do. And, um, I'm familiar with the MO. Yeah. Yeah. So I go down that rabbit hole, find your video. I'm like, who is this dude? And, um, I started paying attention to you when you would pop up in the media or you do an interview and, uh, and then eventually that led me to your blog. And so you're one of, you're one of two people. I'm going to, at the risk, at the risk of sounding like a fanboy here, you're one of two people who I was like, man, if I could ever have them on the show, these are the questions I'd ask. And I would like jot these, uh, notes down in my phone, like months and months ago, before you ever agreed to come on thinking, man, if I ever had the chance to talk to you, these are the, these are some questions I want to ask. So hopefully, hopefully I bring some good ones to you. For sure, man. Hopefully, you got some answers that are uh, worthy of the time you put in. Well, you're you're a uh, hyper articulate, and, and you think things through in a manner that's like me. So I think we'll connect real well. You said something, and I don't remember if it was on your podcast, which is great, by the way, Cleared Hot Podcast, um, or if it was on Jocko's or where else I read it. But you mentioned something about wanting to reach out to law enforcement officers and, and spend more time doing that. So yeah. my first question is: so if you if by reaching out, if you could teach Every law enforcement officer in this country, one, maybe two things. What would you, what would that be? What would your mission be? Man, I mean, I look at the law enforcement profession as one of the most vital yet underappreciated, you know, on the face of the earth. I don't know if most people realize what a job like that entails. I mean, I wasn't a police officer, so I watch it from the outside, but I'd imagine most police officers see people on the worst day of their life and the worst moment of their life. And they're expected to be hundred percent professional, hundred percent of the time. And a lot of the times people see a uniform and they forget that there's a human being behind it, much like the military and mistakes can be made. Anytime anything ter- terminates in a human being, mistakes can be made. And from what I see, from my view in the cheap seats, I see a lot of judgment and no empathy for the situation that these people are put into. Uh, and I can appreciate some of the situations because having the military background that I did, it was a lot of high consequence, time compressed environments where I had to make decisions on the fly. And the results of those decisions could have very consequential impact only, you know, not only on myself, but to other people. And from my experience, from what I've seen interacting with law enforcement, it seems that most agencies as far as advice that I would give, you know, starting to get around to answering your question, it seems that a lot of agencies either don't have the time, resources, or manpower to really devote to training as much as I would like to see them do so. So my first piece of advice would be, one, get out and train as much as humanly possible. But there's a caveat to that, and the caveat is, is when you're out there doing that training, you know, one of the principles that we used to rely upon is the bedrock in the SEAL teams is that you need to train equal to the level, if not exceed the level you think you're going to encounter in real life, because you don't want to find where your margins are in a real life situation where other people are relying on you. So we introduce those things in training. And with that training, I think law enforcement officers, they need to train to failure. We used to do that all the time in the SEAL teams. We would set up situations that were not, impossible and they weren't necessarily no win scenarios, but we would have so many things going on that it would highlight deficiencies in the individual, whether that's their ability to uptake process and deliver information, whether it's, uh, it, it highlights their experience when it comes to making a tactical decision and not being able to think two or three steps down the road, uh, leadership decisions, I mean, all of those things, uh, lack of knowledge in medical situations. So whatever it may be, we would train to highlight those failures so people had a better understanding of where they actually sit. It sucks going into a game and not knowing where your where your baseline is. So find those baselines in training and understand that baselines don't exist with a resting heart rate. Your true baseline is where you are when your heart rate is at maximal. Train is harder than you think that you're ever going to have to train uh, for real and wear the stuff that you're going to wear. You know, it's uh, especially when it comes to putting hands on people in combatives type stuff. It's great to put a gi on and roll around on a mat, but you need to have your duty belt on. You need to have your vest on. You need to have all this stuff that you're going to actually be wearing when you're out on when you're on shift, because that's what you're going to end up with in real life. So that's my biggest piece of advice is train 
and hold the standard that you're going to be expected to meet, not the artificial standard of what you want to be able to do. You have to look at the realities of the world and then train for that. So, you know, that's a common misperception people have that, that cops have this intense level of training um, that's equal to a special operations community. I've, I've had, you know, you get the question every once in a while, why couldn't, why couldn't we uh, shoot him in the hand or shoot the gun out of his hand? And not a, nobody can do that, but... What are you talking about? It happens in the movies all the time. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> Channing Tatum can do it. Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a real struggle because uh, we don't have that opportunity from within the department to... To, to do that. For example, my last qualification I went through last week was a glorified version of Duck Hunt. You know, in fact, Duck Hunt had better uh, graphics than this than this yeah. thing did. And I didn't even fire the fake weapon. So you, so you did it on a simulator. <laughs> did it on a simulator. It's a screen, right? It's it's yeah. it's it's a video game. Um, there's nothing realistic about it because it's uh, in a room with the lights on, with your your buddies surrounding you, watching you. You know and Hopefully mocking you and judging you. And Absolutely. You. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> you know, you know, you know my department well, apparently. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but so how do we, where do we start to prioritize? Because of course, just like you, uh, I got kids. Uh, yeah. I got, I got stuff I got to do on my days off. Um, we've had Tim Kennedy on and he's expressed a similar uh, ethos of, you know, your day is training and training and training on your days off to come to work. But that becomes really uh, exhausting, you know, and so we got to find that balance. So, you know, it does, it is exhausting. And in my opinion, though, if you, if you swear an oath to protect and serve in any way, shape or form, you don't get days off. I mean, I think that's the reality that it comes to. I mean, I know as an off duty police officer, you guys are allowed to carry 24 seven. I'd imagine that most guys do. And I would imagine I'm good guys and gals, obviously, and I would imagine that if faced with a situation where you needed to step forward, you would do so not out of a feeling of obligation, but because you know that's the, your job and that's what you signed up for. So it is exhausting, um, but you have to find a balance. And for me, the best thing, I mean, I'm, I'm not even in the military anymore. I'm not a law enforcement officer, but I still feel obligated to step in and do something. If something, if I see something wrong happening in my presence, I feel obligated, not only for the example for my children that I'm trying to raise, but just because it's the only way that I feel like I can do anything to make this world better that we're living in. But you have to be prepared if you're going to do that because it's a double-edged sword. You can get yourself spanked pretty hard and you can make situations work if you're not, or worse if you're not prepared. Uh, and for me, it's, you know, I start my day off early and I create the time. I have three kids, a 14 year old, a 12 year old and a nine year old. My day starts you know, I'm going to say at 429 because that's one minute before Jocko wakes up and he's lazy. <laughs> so I get up one minute before Jocko, regardless of when he gets up, I get up one minute earlier. Uh, and I actually, Jocko's a good friend and I actually <laughs> harassed him on Twitter for like a week. I would send a picture and post it one minute before he did. And then I got tired and stopped doing that. But I create the time for myself. Mm -hmm. So for me, physical, it, it, the life of a SEAL starts with physical preparation. So you got to get in the gym and you got to move steel around. You got to have a level of conditioning. And in any tactical environment, first responder, LEO, military, it has to start with that. So you have to prioritize that, not only because it gives you the engine and the vehicle to do your job, but I think it, it clarifies your mental process for you. It allows you to do more because you're not worried about your physical conditioning. I mean, look at the schedule and the demands of your family life and judge it against the scale of, hey, do I really want to wake up in the morning and put the time in to condition myself. No, not really. But do I really want to get into a physical confrontation with somebody on the street and have that lack of preparation manifest itself in a fatality? And then my family is, you know, living without me or a situation that I'm not able to control because you can very easily take a hands-on situation and escalate it to a gun situation. If somebody gets outside of their comfort zone, right? They start reaching for what's going to make them the most comfortable, what they think is going to make them safe. And something that could be handled with your hands is now a fatal shooting incident. And that doesn't work out well for anybody, whether the person that got shot or the uh, the department that's involved either. So I get it. I mean, everybody's busy, but prioritize the most important things in your life and then lay out your day that way. So I get up early. I try to get my stuff done. I make my kids breakfast. I take my kids to school. I sit in front of the computer, get all my work stuff done, go work out again if I need to, and then just cycle my day that way. It's not easy, uh, and it shouldn't be because it's important. You brought up a couple of things that I like there about the idea, the, just the concept of uh, creating the time instead of finding the time, 
you know, there's a positive expectancy in that language that you use versus a negative expectancy. And then, well, if you find a 25th hour in the day, please call me because I would <laughs> love to have or an eighth day in the week. But we, we all have the same calendar. We'll have the same clock. Just want it more than the next guy. Get up and get out of the bed because it's that important. And I think having that perspective makes it a little bit easier. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And as a good example of what not to do was was me this morning, right? My kids have been having nightmares, and I don't know why they're not sleeping well. But and we have a puppy that always helps uh, sleep through the night too. But uh, had grand plans this morning to do that: get up at zero five and get in a workout before everyone else was up, and and be able to clear my head and knew that this was first thing in the morning for me was our talk. And uh, yeah, that that alarm went off and thought, well, I mean, I did get up four times last night, and you know probably need that rest and sure enough come 6 30 and now i'm scrambling and now my mind yeah. is all all bent out of shape with everything else that i have to do that i didn't do before so there's a good i'm, I'm just throwing myself into the bus here as a good example of why what you prescribe is is really the way to go and you know well, and that, the situation you describe happens to all of us like i believe me there's plenty of days where i don't feel like doing a damn thing but I actually find those days, if I can force myself to go and say workout as an example, mm-hmm. I actually get more out of those days because it's mental versus physical. Yep. And I find that on the days that I feel like working out the least are the days that I need to work out the most. Yep. That, I think you're absolutely right. <laughs> so where is so we start with a basis of physical fitness and physical training, but where do you see the biggest skills gap? Uh, is the biggest for cops? Is is it in firearms and our our lack of ability to go hands first, or where do you see it as as a kind of a outsider with some intimate knowledge yeah. of the di- dynamic? Uh, tough to say, only because I'm not intimately familiar with the training protocol, like all the way from the academy and what you guys do for sustainment beyond. Uh, you know, when I when I worked in my main job was to have a weapon system in my hands. I always maintained a hyper level of currency, but I could go and grab 5,000 rounds and go to the range and, you know, shoot 500 rounds every morning. You know, I had access to my weapons and I had access to unlimited ammunition. From my understanding, uh, police officers generally do not have that as far as a training budget or allocation or a range. And that's, and that's, that sucks because you guys, you know this, the guys and gals who carry a weapon for a living, there's an inherent burden that comes with that. And people think that carrying a gun is like it's powerful and it, and it makes you safer. And the reality is that it's neither powerful nor does it make you safer if you don't know how to use it. And, and a weapon, in my mind, it's a vehicle that transfers kinetic energy, which is why it works in a bank robbery and it also works in a hostage rescue situation. It just depends on where you want to direct that kinetic energy to. And if it comes to a gunfight, I mean, the key to survival in a gunfight is being good with a gun. And it's if officers don't get the training and then the currency that they need, you're being put into a very dangerous situation. You're actually being forced into that situation. And I know uh, a few police officer buddies who spend their own money and their own time to go for the additional range time and the ammunition just to maintain their currency. And and if that's the only route that you have, I mean, if you're going to carry a gun for a living and you can economically support that and not have a negative outcome in your family life outside of work, I would absolutely recommend doing that. And then another one I would say is invest the time getting into an environment where you can practice putting hands on people. Because I get hit up with this one all the time. You know, like people will say, well, I don't really feel comfortable in uh, violent confrontations. What should I do? And well, the answer is right there in the question. You know, your body ad- adapts to the stimulus that you get used to. One, walk away from the violent situation. But if you can't, knowing how to handle yourself is actually going to help you be the bigger person and just say, hey, let me just buy you a beer. You know, you're a drunk asshole, this, that, or the other, and just walk away from it. But go and teach yourself how to handle those things. And most fights, as I'm sure you guys see all the time on the streets, they end up on the ground. It's a wrestling match unless somebody gets cold cocked. Uh, and if you don't know how to handle yourself in that situation – you're going to be in trouble. And I actually had a situation with a police officer. I was at dinner with my family and uh, a single officer pulled up to deal with a woman. I don't have a bunch of experience around drugs, but I know she was nine. eyed drunk and I think she was on something else at the time. The officer that showed up, I'm six foot tall, 205. He had to have been five, nine tops, maybe 160. single officer 
The guy who ended up being the problem was 240, 6'3", easy. He was pretty sloppy. But that situation, I, in hindsight, I look back, the officer got in between the two, and I ended up getting into a wrestling match with the guy as he was in a wrestling match with the woman. And I think back as to what would have happened if that guy had put his hands on the officer. That could have easily escalated into, well, you can't tase the guy because the guy's holding on to you, so you'd basically be tasing yourself. That could have very easily escalated into a gun coming out and somebody losing their life. It's by yourself, if you don't know how to avoid those physical confrontations or if you get into one and you don't know how to disengage from that to protect your space and distance, it's a very dangerous thing because that guy could have easily wrapped up that officer and who knows what would have happened. Mm-hmm. So I would say, again, if you make your living with a gun on your hip or in your hand, you need to be proficient and current with the weapon. And then beyond that, if your job requires or might require putting hands on an individual, you need to know how to, you need to know how to handle yourself. And then again, you know, the other deficiency, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a deficiency, but situational awareness is a skill that is learned over time. And once you have enough experience in the bucket, you can draw from it because you basically have two buckets, right? You have luck and you have experience. Uh, when I was a young SEAL, I, I was pulling from the luck bucket all the time. So they paired me up with somebody, you know, and that's the mentorship role inside of the SEAL teams is huge. We shepherd people along until they know enough that they're not just a danger to themselves and then to everybody else. But you have to learn situational awareness. And I have seen, I judge no communities uh, by inter- interactions on individuals, just like people shouldn't judge SEALs on an interaction with one person because we have ferocious douchebags in the SEAL teams. And we have amazing people. And I've seen police officers that have a wealth of experience that can de-escalate verbally. And they're kind of guarding their angles and making sure that they're good and they maintain good situational awareness. And I've seen other ones who will allow themselves to become offended because somebody's mouthing off at them. Like they think that their badge is some sort of uh, magic ticket that you know allows them to do whatever that they want to do. And, that, and in those situations that I've watched from a distance – it usually ends up in some kind of confrontation that didn't have to be that way. And it's, in my experience, it's from a lack of situational awareness because they still have some feeling of needing to prove themselves as opposed to just taking the bigger perspective and backing off and, and de-escalating. I think a lot of that too comes from confidence, your, your confidence and your ability yeah. in your knowledge of that. You can talk, you can talk to people, you got the skills to back it up. It seems like a lot of that stuff. And, and, and to be honest too, I was, as I've gone through my career, but in my first year or two, I was more that guy than I am the other guy now, you know, the guy who can de-escalate. And it's, it's a yeah. process, and it's a learned process. And the, the troubling thing is, you know, we, 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 put you, we put people through an academy, and no, no single academy in the United States is the same as the academy next door to it. They're all different, different curriculum, different instructors, different emphasis. So we're all getting a little bit different information, different tactics. I mean, East Coast to West Coast is like East Coast rap to West Coast rap. Like, I mean, it is... The, the tactics are totally different, and finding ways to, to impart some consistency there is, is going to be a challenge for us. I want to shift gears a little bit because you mentioned it, uh, mentorship. You talked about mentorship in the teams, and a yeah. big emphasis on this show is finding mentors and creating a team around you. You know, As, that, as a tactical athlete, we need a team of people to help keep us uh, ready and going, but we also, as leaders, need a team around us. I'm curious about who your mentors are and who you have on your team. Yeah, I mean, I can start backwards on that one. I mean, you're looking at my team. I, I, but the reality is just because I'm in a position in my life where I'm still trying to figure out the direction I want to go post-military, and I don't need uh, a team per se as far as a, from an occupational standpoint because I'm, I'd still say I'm a little bit like a flag kind of in the wind and drifting around, just taking opportunities as they come. But, I mean, in the SEAL teams, uh, the vast majority of the guys that I would say were, I can look back on are, uh, as my mentors, they're still, most of them are still in, so I will respect their privacy and not mm-hmm. and not name them. But it was generally, if not always, uh, somebody that was, you know, on the, the rank ladder system, one or two rungs above in a position that I would have liked to have gotten to in, you know, call it two to four years. But I mean, most of the things that we do in the SEAL teams, it's there's structured training and then it's OJT. It's on the job training because there's what you learn, you know, in the academy and the SEAL teams is BUDS and then SQT. 
uh, you know, so the, the basic selection course and then the SEAL qualification training where you where you learn in air quotes everything that you need to know in a book. Like, oh, I understand how to clear a room. Then you actually have to go and understand how to do that in a room that's not a perfect square like it was at the training course. So you have the knowledge, but you don't have the experience. And the goal, and my only goal looking back now and leaving the SEAL teams was to try to leave it a better place than I got into. And probably the most rewarding positions I had were one as a BUDS instructor, where I actually got to sit down remembering what it was like to be in the seats in the early phases of the selection and talk to guys and answer questions honestly and try to teach them and mentor them through. And then as the training officer in my, uh, my last position of shepherding through guys with no combat experience all the way through a combat deployment and watching that tactical shift between being uncertain to incredibly sharp teeth. That was definitely the most rewarding aspect of it. But I only was able to do those things because other people had done it for me. And it's very easy, if not simple, to overwhelm somebody who's brand new right out of the academy. I mean, can you imagine your first day on the job out of the academy, how easy it would be to be completely overwhelmed and probably a basic traffic stop or a domestic violence? I mean, you'd be done, right? You know what you're supposed to do. You might know what the law says, but you're completely done. So I'm assuming your department, like any other one, it pairs you up with a training officer, right? Mm-hmm. And you draft off of that person. And that's exactly what happens when you first get into a SEAL team. My first SEAL team, I was responsible for my weapon and a radio. And I had somebody looking over my shoulder on both until I could manage my weapon myself and then maintain the radio. And then my second platoon, three years later, I was the guy who was in charge of the radio. And then I had somebody new who was underneath me. And that process continues itself slowly And the best mentors that I had would teach me and then send me off into the wild and say, hey, you can always come to me for answers, but try to solve it for yourself first. So they would give me enough rope to hang myself with the expectation that before I did, I would come to them and I would ask for help. Now, all of that, though, we were able to do in a in a training environment because our when we clock in, I'll say go going overseas is clocking in. We have pretty hard and fast, like left and right boundaries. Like when we get overseas, you're basically, you're you're clocking into work. And when you come home, you get back to the United States, you're off for a bit. So we have a very distinct line between practice and practical. The police officer occupation, I think it might blur a little bit more. Just like I said, you guys are kind of on call 24-7, on duty 24-7. And that comes back again to creating these training environments where you can give people that rope and you can allow them to make mistakes and you can let them identify the mistakes for themselves. So they learn from it and then they don't repeat those mistakes in real life. So we have an advantage in that way or had an advantage in that way because it was so clear and concise, our start and stops. But I mean, I, I certainly wouldn't be the person that I am today if it wasn't for the mentors in my life. I mean, that started with my parents. If you want to go all the way back, I feel like they gave me uh, my moral compass. You know, they definitely helped set my, find my true north as far as my morality Getting into the SEAL teams, I was surrounded by amazing people, but not all of them. Like I said before, there's, I mean, you know, just some terrible people in the SEAL teams. Uh, but the vast majority were great, and it was those people that that really helped me to get to where I am today. Not that I know where, not that I know where this is, and it's going to continue to change. But I and I still look for those people. Uh, like I just got into archery is a good example, and right. I went and just found uh, like, okay, who is like the number one dude? And just try to tuck myself underneath that person's wing. Mm-hmm. And we used to do that in the teams if we wanted to become better at shooting. We would find the best in the world and we would try to draft off of their experience or climbing or diving or skydiving. I mean, just fill in the blank. Just surround yourself constantly with people that are better than you. And that is especially important in a leadership position. The best leaders that I've ever been around never tried to be the smartest person in the room. They actually spent more time trying to figure out what their personal deficiencies were and then staff those people or staff those deficiencies with people that were far more capable than themselves. And that's what makes them great. You know, they surround themselves with those great people because it does take a team, especially in these complex environments. I think that's a great that's a great piece of advice right there. What do you do you have some sort of practice of self awareness to try and make sure you're not missing something in your blind spot? I just constantly tell myself that I suck and therefore, you know, it's very easy to build yourself up from there. You know what I mean? Like 
you know, the most dangerous thing I think I've ever seen is ego. And we all have them. I have one. You have one. I think it's more a degree of how much people are self-aware of that and how much they allow it to impact themselves. You know, one of my deficiencies and things that, that I constantly know I need to work on, I'm hypercritical of my errors and my mistakes and my shortcomings. And I don't put a lot of emphasis into when I'm successful. And that can be a very, a very negative loop if you leave it unchecked. But having good people around you can short circuit that cycle and prevent you from, you know, digesting yourself basically. But I mean, you got to take an honest assessment of who you are and just, you know, I would constantly remind myself, it doesn't matter how good you are at something. There's somebody out there who's better and God help you. If you think you're the best in the world and then you encounter that person who's just going to eat your lunch. Right. Do you remember, uh, if, you, if you're able to remember, I remember the distinct moment where I realized I had transitioned from the student to the mentor role. And it wasn't even until it wasn't until I was close to getting promoted where I realized that I, it would, you know, it happened once and it wasn't something that registered with me. But I realized people were coming to me with questions and with asking for guidance. And I, it, I actually remember the moment where the light bulb went off and I was like, oh, this is interesting. This is a whole new transition in my career. Do you remember that? I do uh, because I had a similar experience and it was more in the middle of a training evolution. Before people would move, uh, we were making a maneuver. They would look over to me to see what I was doing. And I was usually looking over just to make sure that everybody else was doing the right thing. And I saw, I'm like, what are you looking at me for? Like, look over there. Like, what? And I was like, okay, like I've, I'm now in a, a different position here, which actually to me is even more weight on your shoulders because leadership, it is a burden, but it, it's because it's so important it becomes even more critical that you're self-aware and you maintain control of your ego and maintain control of your emotions and keep that situational awareness. It was a reminder like, all right, I need to keep my shit together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So we have a lot of frontline supervisors, sergeants, some lieutenants uh, that listen to the show. And I think we've all been in that moment where we had to make a decision to do I stay doing the work that I love, the kind of the dirty work for lack of a better word, but the, I mean the day-to-day -day work yeah. of being an officer or being – in your case, you know, being a member of the team, or do I try and promote, maybe learn some new skills, put myself out there a little bit, but also expand my ability to make an impact, right? I know I had that decision when I decided to test for sergeant. I'm curious why you decided to try and promote out of DevGrew, a high-performing group like that, when you put in your officer packet in to become a lieutenant. Well, I did that. So I had left development group after getting shot on target. So I went to be a BUDS instructor to give myself some time to rehab. And it, it wasn't, it, I wouldn't say it was a, like a crystal clear breadcrumbs that I followed to have that happen. Basically in the Navy advancement system, the biggest jump is between E6 to E7. So the enlisted rates go E1 through E9. E6 is a first class petty officer. E7 is a chief petty officer. And that's the jump between, I would say, middle management to upper management on the enlisted side of the house. To make that jump, it's pretty straightforward. Like there, here's the list of things you have to do. You have to check all these boxes off. Have you had this leadership position? Okay, good. Do you have awards? Do you have deployments? Well, one of the boxes was called the uh, leading petty officer. And it's a role that you have to hold for, I think, 18 to 24 months. And I was doing that job when I got shot. And they counted my LPO tour as incomplete because I wasn't able to finish the deployment. So I submitted my package for chief two times and got turned down two times because they literally go through your record and they get to that one box that's not checked and they just toss your record to the side because at that point you're a number in your face and maybe they're looking at your package for 30 seconds. You either have all the boxes or you don't. Uh, regardless of your backstory, regardless of the command that you came from, regardless of what you've done, you've either got the boxes or you don't. So they said no twice, which not only set me back those two years, but I, there was already an LPO in the phase of training that I was at, at Bud. So I would have had to let that individual finish their term, then start over again for another two years, then submit my chief package again. So basically sprinting uphill in soft sand, getting nowhere. And I knew I wanted to stay in, but I also knew that I wanted to have some impact. And I started doing some research and found a commissioning program that, allowed me to submit a package without a college degree. And the reality is in the military, you know, it's a rock, paper, rank organization. You can have the best idea in the world, but at the end of the day, the caller device that's the biggest is going to be the one that makes the decision. 
and the most senior enlisted person in the military is outranked by the most junior officer. So I, instead of continuing down the enlisted side of the house, I submitted my package for the commissioning program and got picked up on the first try. And that's, it wasn't some, you know, Machiavellian scheme to try to work my way into a position of power. It was the only thing that I could really, the only option I had in front of me that was time effective and efficient, Mm -hmm. but also allowed me to take a vertical step and have impact with the result. Yeah, I think people misunderstand that a lot of the time they think they use that P word power and that they they assume that that is the motivation to it. But I think the better word you just used was impact. And, and And I'm always curious how we can make officers on the individual level, how we can help them see the impact they're able to create, but also just the, just by de facto that they, that they swore this oath, that they put on a badge, that they are, they are our nation's leaders, right? I mean, we, we have to, like you say, hold the standard. We should be expected to hold a better standard than the rest of the regular civilian population. And your line level officer is as much a leader as a sergeant or lieutenant or your chief or your sheriff, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's my feeling. And I, one of my missions is these days is to help people see that and understand that. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but that's, that's almost more of a statement than a question. Well, no, leadership is my favorite topic. I spend probably about half of my year doing public speaking and I travel all over the place and people want me to talk about leadership. And especially in corporate America, one of the most common trappings that I see people fall into is that they equate leadership with title or position. And they think that if they don't have the right business card with the right initials on it, or they don't have the corner office, or they don't have the right title, whatever it may be, they just assume that they're not a leader because they're not leading by position. And positional authority and leadership, it certainly exists. But what does that leave for everybody else who is not in that position? And like I said, in the business world, right, everybody wants to try to get into the C-suite. They want to be the CEO or the CIO or the CMO. And guess what? There's not enough of those jobs for everybody to do. So it's probably not going to happen. And people will use that as an excuse and they'll say, oh, I'll take care of that later when I get to that point. And it's the same thing that I would say to any officer, regardless of where you are in your career or the guy who's in the academy or the first day out of the academy. Leadership is a skill and it has to be practiced. The best leaders that I know, they didn't come out of the womb that way. Or if they did, they would be such a statistical anomaly. I'm sure there's a white elephant out there that did. But it comes from experience. And if you don't take the time to practice before you get into a leadership position, when you get there on your first day and you wake up and you're like, all right, today I'm a leader. Guess what? Not only are you screwed, but the the most impact you're going to have and the people who are really going to be screwed are the ones that work for you. So I constantly reinforce to everybody that I talk to that there's basically two ways to lead. And one of them is open to you at all times. One of them is by, we'll call it by title, rank, position, whatever it may be. But for everybody else, you always have the opportunity to lead by example. And this is what I would equate it to uh, raising children. You know, I don't have any rank over my kids. Uh, at best, I can, I'm trying to create non-psychopaths that aren't going to end up on Fox News as a serial killer, <laughs> even though I'm pretty sure one of my sons is going to collect heads in a jar. <laughs> but I, they watch everything that I do. They listen to everything that I say. And I have an opportunity, even in my lowest moments, to be the example for them. And that, to me, is much more important than any position or title that you could ever have. Because if you're only thinking of it as, I'll be a leader when I get that position, you're totally screwed. But if you wake up every morning and you think of yourself as a leader and you realize that you need to watch what you say, you need to control your emotions, you need to think about the people that are around you and the impact of your actions and the speech that you have. If you conduct yourself like a leader starting right now in this moment, by the time you get to a leadership position, not only will you be better for it, but the people who work for you will be better served. So if you don't have the stripes on your sleeve that you want that shows people that you're a leader, who cares? Act like it right now. Because then when you have those stripes, people are going to be blown away by what you're capable of doing. Was it like that in the teams? Everybody wanted to be a leader or did you have people who, who abdicated that responsibility just because they were, you know? It wasn't about, in the SEAL teams, it's not about wanting to be a leader. It's you are expected to conduct yourself as a leader or you're going to get your ass kicked out the door. You know, in the absence of leadership, you are expected to step up 
and make a call. And if you were to ask a room of 100 SEALs, who in this room is a leader? Every hand would go up. Now, I ask that question when I go to businesses and I speak, and it's very interesting the number of people who raise their hand and the number of people who don't. Mm -hmm. And I sit there and I look at them, and and I'll pick somebody out, and I'll say, you know, why didn't you raise your hand? What is it about the situation that you're in that makes you think that you're not a leader? And then I'll go through what we just covered, you know, that you have the chance to lead by example and practice and you know, it's the same thing as taking your driver's license test. If you'd never driven a car until you were, the day you turned 16 and you took some manual transmission vehicle to the DMV, you're going to fail because you haven't practiced. Mm-hmm. But if you find a mentor, right, who sits in the car with you, who explains to you the vehicle and shows you how to drive it, you go into a parking lot and then a country road and then a freeway, and you have the requisite knowledge and ability to pass that test, then you're going to go to the DMV window and you're going to be prepared. That Everybody's like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. I'm like, okay, cool. It's the same thing with leadership. If you want to be successful, it's, uh, I wish, I honestly think if people thought that way in the U S we'd be a far better country for it as opposed to people only thinking about themselves. I can't agree more. Yeah. And I'd love, I'd love any, at some point in the future, be able to ask that same question to a hundred cops in a, in a room and have every one of them raise their hand and see that they are. It's How many do a- you think would raise their hand if you asked an average hundred from any department? I would bet, uh, you know, assuming if you, if, if you're all, if you're asking all like a takeaway rank structure, right. Cause it's easy for someone yeah. who has stripes to say, well, I'm a leader and you go, yeah. eh, not so much, <laughs> but you know, you ask a, a bunch of quote unquote slick sleeves, line level guys, you put a hundred of them in the room. I bet you might get 20, 30, which you is know. crazy, right? It's because absolutely they're crazy. All, they're all in the leadership position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and it's, you know, and it's. Just like the teams, one thing—the commonality we have—is this emphasis on the on the team, on the squad, on the department. Like we are not more important than our partner, and I think that's one thing we kind of need to get over as a hurdle: is feeling like um, like when guys promote and they they have a hard time talking about themselves because they know they're not supposed to be boastful. And I get that you're not, but you need to be able to identify your own uh, strengths as well, because if you are taught and then you believe that you don't have strengths and that your strengths aren't unique to you and that you're not you're not quote-unquote special that really closes people down to the idea that they can step up and and be the leader we have to embrace our skills as much as we need to show some empathy and lack of ego it's 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 a dynamic but i think we kind of shoot ourselves in the foot with it you know well it also needs to be reinforced in training you know people will ask about why how we develop that leadership mentality in the teams and it's very easy we train all the time and, you know, you get used to hearing the same voices because if you're in a team of, you know, somewhere between four to six people, there's going to be an officer in charge just based off the rank structure. And you get very used to hearing the same person's voice, you know, hey, go this way, break left, whatever it may be. Mm-hmm. So we'll do a training evolution and get right to the point where that person would normally speak and we just pull them out and we watch what happens. And it's pretty ugly when you first start doing that yeah. because pe- people are thinking reactively, not proactively. They're letting somebody else think about the future for them. Mm-hmm. And we, we, again, we allow failure to occur. We actually encourage it to occur in the training environment. We address the result of that failure, the impact it has, and how it occurred. Then we do it again, not like 20 minutes later, but like the next day. And it's still ugly, but it's better. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's less of an abstract painting and it's starting to become a little bit more concise. But if you repeat that enough, eventually it gets to the point where you can pull the leader out and it, there's no hiccup whatsoever because you've shifted your people's thinking from reactive to proactive because they're thinking in their head, at some point, these sons of bitches are going to pull the officer out of here and I don't want to be the asshole who doesn't have the call. So they're thinking like a chess player instead of a checkers player. Mm-hmm. They're two to three moves ahead instead of just you know trying to absorb the information as it comes out. And then we can pull the next guy and there's still no impact. That's how you create that culture. So you can talk about it and you can teach it, but if you don't reinforce it in training, I mean, it's not to expect somebody to do that in a real life scenario where they've never practiced it. I mean, that's, that's a tough ask. So that was one of my questions and that's okay. We'll take that as number one for the follow-up question here, but what are the best practices that you, that the military can teach law enforcement? And that being one of them maybe is take the leader out of the position and, and train for leadership. What are some others? I mean, and then I would say just hyper-realism when it comes to the training, you know, and seek failure in the training environment so you can learn from it. And and this is a a tough one. 
like we were saying earlier, it's not hard to overwhelm new people. So you can make brand new people fail and fail and fail and fail. That's, that's not what I'm saying. Allow them to find the boundaries of their experience and their situational awareness and their tactical prowess. Allow them to find them incrementally in training with a failure occasionally so they know where that line is because you have to know where you can put your toes then build yourself forward. So you're not failing just for failure's sake. You want to seek failure for the information and the benefit that can be gained from that in the training environment so that when you go out into the real world, you know where your baseline standard is. And uh, so hyper-realistic training, train for leadership. I mean, those would probably be the two, the two biggest pieces of advice that I would give from what was important and impactful to me in my time in the military. I have one more on that too because you, you recently talked about uh, this idea of hold the standard and you're talking about yeah. it during selection and training for the SEALs and how qualifications are designed to meet the mission. You know, with such a negative view of law enforcement in the last couple of years, we're just starting to come out of it. But I've talked to officers from all over the country in departments all over the place and they're having a hard time filling vacant spots. And this has gone, yeah. from, this has gone from being a calling for a lot of people to just a job, just a job to get by, you know, an hourly wage. What are the things you think that we as individual officers can do to help hold that standard? Because a lot of us don't have any influence on who we hire or the training process or the recruitment. But what are we as individual officers able to do, you think? It's an interesting question. And again, so all I can give you is like anecdotal stuff from what I've seen or what I've heard other people say. Uh, You know, the 24-hour, and I hate to use the term news or media cycle, is unbelievable you know anytime there is an officer involved shooting instead of actually taking the time to get gather any facts right it's all over both networks and social media so it that is not helping you guys at all it just paints this hyper negative perception that i don't know if there's any way that you guys could get out of but from hearing people i mean one of the last things that i ever talk about is my military career when i'm in mixed company especially with my wife because i'm interested in hearing what other people think because the way they talk changes once they hear about my background. Yeah, just in military in general, right? Because they'll they're like, "Oh, uh, he is a, obviously a righty," and by the way, it changes. Like, yeah, it changes yeah. the temperature in the room, doesn't it? Yeah, changes the temperature. And so I like to just listen to what people think. And for me, I would say, from a law enforcement perspective, I would just try to humanize yourself as much as possible. And that's what I think most people don't understand is that they see the uniform and they and they just can't get past that mental disconnect that there's a – it's not a flesh robot wearing that uniform. It's a human being there. And you might be having a bad day as well, right? And you have to be able to compartmentalize that. But like every time I see a police officer, I'm like, hey, what's going on, Matt? Like I always take the time to interact with them. And to be honest with you, I'm always looking at the holster because I swear to God, I just want to see if I can get their gun out before they can get to it. I, I know it's a problem, but every time I see a cop, that's the first thought in my mind. I'm like, I wonder if I can get that thing. <laughs> I don't think it would go well, which is why I've never tried it, and I'm totally off topic. But, I mean, I think most people have allowed their perception of the profession to be painted by social media and the news. Mm-hmm. and. I mean, I would just go out and interface and just talk with people and just show that that human side, that humanity of what it is that you guys actually do. And two, how do you think we can be better about reaching out to veterans? You know, I work with a lot. I, I never served, but I work probably probably close to half my department are veterans from various branches. And always, um, I guess I shouldn't say always, that's the qualifier you don't ever want to use, but... Um, they bring a lot of skills and a lot of qualities that we need. How do we reach out to the veterans better and welcome them into our ranks? Uh, you know, that's a double-edged sword as well. Uh, I, and I constantly butt up against this one, and I try to always tell people not to judge or confuse character and occupation. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not all veterans are good people, just like not all police officers are good people. And some of the skill sets from the military apply well, but not all vets would be a great fit for sure. Uh, policing. Uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know what the best avenue would be to approach or reach the the veteran community other than maybe doing an outreach program at your, you know what I mean? And just mm-hmm. blast out there be like, Hey, we want to sit down, you know what I mean? And try to get a gathering of veterans to do some type of event with the, with the organization. I mean, you know, the military guys, especially if they didn't do 20 years and they're used to that structure where you can work towards a pension, a lot of guys would probably find that very beneficial to be able to do a lateral transfer of some kind. Hopefully 
I mean, but again, not always, depending on their background, they would have some level of proficiency and tactical understanding, even though you can absolutely serve in the military and not touch a gun, you know? Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I, I would just maybe reach out to some of the larger veteran organizations and just see if there's any interest in doing, uh, you know, freaking day at the, you know, do come do a ride along or, you know, come do a day with the, with the cops. Right. That's good stuff. Um, you recently started your cleared hot podcast. Uh, yes. Very, it's doing June very, what's that? I think in June or July. Right. And it's doing very well. Uh, I was immediately. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, doing okay. I think we were talking about this before we started recording. I have no idea. It's just, I don't know. I see the numbers, but I don't know how to extrapolate any useful data out of it. <laughs> well, we can. I can maybe help you parse some of that detail. I know a little bit, uh, just a little bit information to be dangerous, I guess. But, uh, you know, I, I subscribed right away just, again, because I'd been kind of following your blog and you on social and all that sort of stuff. But um, why start the podcast? What What was it that motivated you to do that? Because, as you now know, uh, it's a lot of work. It's not immediately or readily apparent that there is a uh, end goal or outcome that will result from it. What, what did, why did you start it? It was a combination of being invited on uh, other people's podcasts Mm -hmm. and then the recommendation coming from a friend saying, hey, you know, uh, you ought to give it a go. And I I resisted it for a bit. And then I realized, though, that, I mean, I have way more questions than I have answers. I mean, in my own mind, I kind of departed from the regular world for almost 20 years and I'm now – you know, doing my best sloppily trying to interface back into it with my jaw on the floor half the time watching human beings interact with each other. (laughs) And I I just, I, it's such a bizarre and unique set of experiences that definitely colors the way that I see the world. Mm -hmm. And it, and it, and in that color, it doesn't match with what I see people do a lot of the time, what I hear them say or talk about how they think. And I wanted the opportunity to sit down, hopefully with people that don't share the same opinions as I do, or just an, an ability to get things off of my chest. You know, like the blog I started because the guy at Starbucks told me I couldn't come back anymore if I kept arguing with people online. <laughs> so I almost call it stupid shit I hear in Starbucks, but I figured Starbucks would have sued me. So I just called it Confessions of an Idiot because that's how I look at myself. And it allowed me to write down what I thought. And then just walk away from it. It wouldn't bother me anymore. And then the podcast, I think, is kind of more a natural extension of that. People will reach reach out to me and they ask questions. And I love the fact that it makes me sit and think about what it is that I truly believe and why I believe the, what I do. And also access to interesting people. I mean, that's really all it was, is a way for me to kind of, I guess, explore who I am and try to figure out some way to do something positive with the bizarre experiences that I have from my previous job. It's a pretty public way of uh, of exploring your own identity. <laughs> I mean, not really. I just talk into a microphone. <laughs> That's how I look at it. <laughs> you hit hit publish and it's all good. Nobody's. <laughs> yeah, you hit upload. And it's like I don't know what happens to it after that. Where this wasn't a planned question, but talking about this, where um, where where did your your post military career shift? And, and what I mean by that is, what opportunities or doors were presented? A, a, an introduction was made. A handshake where you no longer were just, I mean, obviously the wingsuit flying and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah. Had, you had a lot of it, a lot of exposure from that was, but where, where did you go from just, you know, I don't want to say just, but from a, a guy who just left the military to public speaking, world record holder in the di- in the wingsuit, uh, you know, podcast, um, you know, you've got these, you've got these high level f- group of mentors around you and various expert, you know, yeah. The wingsuit, the hunting, the podcast. I mean, Joe Rogan is a friend of yours. Jack is a, a friend of yours. Both have extremely successful podcasts. Um, I mean, I think mine's a little bit bigger than Joe's, but I keep telling him to keep at it, you know? Keep, yeah, keep just keep trying, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, my least favorite question when people ask me, like, so what do you do? I'm like, fuck. <laughs> because I don't know. I mean, I literally wake up and I just kind of take the opportunities that come in front of me. So all of those things that you mentioned, there was no architecture for that. It was an opportunity that somebody else presented to me or an idea that somebody else had. None of those things that you mentioned were unique ideas to myself. I would argue that it's entirely possible that I've never had a unique idea in my entire life, which is fine because I like to surround myself with people who are way smarter than I am, mm-hmm. who are incredibly creative. But 
each one of those things, I just, it was all little baby steps and just trying to keep momentum going. Somebody had the idea of, you know, why don't you do something around the wingsuit to try to drive awareness for fundraising. So I looked at what I would need to do and then just started putting one foot in front of the other one. The public speaking, uh, I don't even know. I, honestly, I don't even know how that started. I had no desire to be a public speaker in air quotes is like a job. And people started hitting me up over email and somebody said, Hey, you need to create a website. So I created a website. Same thing with the podcast. You know, good buddy was like, Hey, you know, you should look at doing the podcast thing. And so I looked at what it took to do a podcast and I just, I don't even look at them as individual or unique things. I just kind of look at like, that sounds interesting. And I'll take one step towards being able to do that. And then I guess when you look at it from a few, you know, you look at it with a little bit more distance, it looks like a lot, but to me, man, I just try to put one foot in front of the other every day. I don't know how I was able to do those things other than just trying to be consistent, not great at anything, but just trying to be consistent and trying to keep the momentum going forward. I think that to me, my, in my experience, then the success comes from authenticity of, of the human, right? I mean, that, that's, that your intentions or that your motivations are, are true uh, and that you are who you say you are and that people come to your aid uh, as a result. So yeah. one last question I want to ask you before I let you go. Um, you know, if you could write one statement on the wall of every briefing room in the Western world, uh, yep. be it a training issue, a motivational issue, um, some advice, uh, some words of encouragement, what would it be? It would be what you allow in your presence is your standard. I like that. So if you're a leader and you tell people that, you know, physical fitness is what's important and then you let your buddies slide or you yourself are outside of, you know, published standards, don't expect anybody else to do something that you're not willing to do yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. If you, you know, look at the, you know, use Hollywood as an example, look at all the sexual harassment stuff that's coming to light. If you knew that was going on and you allowed in your presence and now you want to feign outrage, no, bullshit. Mm -hmm. Because you knew it was going on and that's the standards that you allowed in your presence. It's, it's again, it's the same thing when I try to, like that night, I believe me, I am the most adverse person to physical confrontation. I hate it. I'd rather buy somebody a beer. They can insult me all they want. I could care less. But when I'm sitting there and I'm watching my kids and seeing something play out and I constantly reinforce them to stand up and to do the right thing, had I not done that, what does that say to my kids? That would have been the standard that I set for them. I would have said one thing and done another. So, I mean, that would be the best advice I could give. It's not about what you say. It's about what you do. I think that's a great one because uh, I've, I get asked quite frequently. My history was that I worked for the, in the music industry for 10 years uh, before joining law enforcement. And I get asked, why did, why did I leave such a cool job? And I sometimes have a hard time explaining why, but I think you just nailed it in a sentence that I didn't want to be around that because that wasn't my standard. Yep. And I needed to go find people who could hold that standard. So. Yeah, because if you find yourself in an environment where you literally can't change it, the really only option you have is to laterally transfer somewhere else or do something to change it. Those are really your two choices. Yeah, that's 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 excellent advice for any situation in life. Andy, thank you so much for being on the show. A total treat. Where can people find more find out more about you? I would say the internet, but the internet scares me. <laughs> no, I have. I mean, so the podcast is, it's in, uh, I mean, wherever they host podcasts, Google play or whatever. And then it has cleareredhotpodcast.com. It has like an about section, or if you wanted to find more out about that. And then, uh, because somebody said it was a smart idea to do, I bought the domain name for my, for my name. So andystumpf.com. And I mean, between those two things, like if you can't figure out who I am, then you're, <laughs> you got a problem. Cause that's just everything on there is that I'm comfortable with sharing is on there. And we'll put links to everything in our, in the show notes for this episode too. So people who are sure. driving can't, or can't write it down right now, you can go to the squad. Drive people, especially if you're a police officer. You should get That's right. For that. uh, we'll go to, go to the net for uh, notes for today and find links to Andy stuff. I def, definitely too, for confessions of an idiot. I think you have a lot of great content on there and it's always something that always makes me uh, think about, think so appreciate your time, Andy. Um, you're just a great example of what a guy, can, one guy can do. And uh, I'm going to continue following you. And I know that my audience is a big fan of yours. So I know that you, uh, an impactful conversation today. So thank you. Sounds great, man. 
All right, thanks for listening to this episode of The Squad Room and our interview with Andy Stumpf. If you got something out of this episode, please do me a favor. Do one of two things. Do two things. Do both if you can. One is to share it with someone who you think needs to listen to what we have to say here and what Andy had to share. And the second is to leave a review on your podcast player of choice about what you think of the show. Our job is tough, tougher than anything we put in a few words here, so we want to start a conversation. Uh, That's why we opened up the uh, Squad Room Facebook group uh, to uh, law enforcement members and members of people who are interested in being in law enforcement. We can ask questions and uh, engage in a dialogue there. And also get signed up for our mailing list. You can get signed up for our mailing list by texting the Squad Room to 44222 right from your phone. And of course, you can go to thesquadroom.net and get signed up there. My guest on the next episode is going to be a man I've been trying to track down for some time. I'm very excited about it. Dr. Kelly Sturrett. New York Times bestseller, three books, I believe, on the New York Times bestseller list, a man who owned one of the first 10 CrossFit gyms in the world. He's the founder of Mobility Wad. He is responsible for my journey into CrossFit by watching his videos, uh, along with Greg Amundsen, and he's also responsible for me successfully rehabbing multiple injuries, including uh, a compression fracture in my back. He's also His work has also helped me uh, maintain my back stability uh, and improve Uh, my wrist functions after two surgeries and several other things. It's a great conversation with a man who really supports law enforcement in Kelly Sturette. And I want to give you a snippet of my conversation with him now. So here's a quick snippet of my conversation with Kelly Sturette, uh, founder of Mobility Wad. For every session of training, or let's say for the officer, any session on duty, you owe me 10 minutes of mobility work down regulation work, breathing practice, soft tissue, grinding, hip openers, you know, T-spine work, something on the back end. So basically that's our simple ratio. One training session, one work session, one 10-minute session. And you can even see this where our helicopter pilots, you know, they, you know, they're in these wretched positions all day long. We know you're mechanically compromised. The only reason that's going to be a problem is if you don't address it. And I'm, and I'm the first person to have been given that little lip service until I spent you know, multiple days wearing body armor and multiple days carrying an 11-pound rifle with body armor on and a helmet. And I suddenly was like, oh, this is the problem. I understand. All right. To make sure you don't miss any of that conversation with Kelly, subscribe to the show if you haven't already. That way it's downloaded straight to your phone and you won't miss a thing and you won't uh, get distracted by the squirrels out there, as I often do, and you'll uh, remember and you'll get some good nuggets from Kelly with that. You can also text the Squad Room, again, one word, the Squad Room to 44222 to get signed up for a mailing list, and we'll notify you then when the episode is out. It's been quite the hectic month here in my neck of the woods, Uh, hectic two months at this point, two natural disasters, one that was devastating to the community and shockingly deadly, and I'm uh, rushing through my intros and outros for this episode because uh, I finished a shift and I'm on my way to another one at 0400 in the morning and there's no end in sight to them. So if anything I've learned over the last couple of months is to uh, hug your family members even tighter than you normally would because you just never know when your life is going to change. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Squad Room. If you liked what you heard today, again, please share this conversation with somebody. Review it in iTunes. I read each and every one of them, but it really does help spread the word about the show. If you want to start a conversation, ask a question, hit me up in the Facebook group. Search out The Squad Room on Facebook, and you can find us there. Also on Twitter and Instagram, at The Squad Room. And uh, special thanks to all our Patreon uh, partners, people who have supported the show in that way. I'll be back next episode with more information on how you can support the show through Patreon. But if you do want to right now, if you're aware of what Patreon is and how to help it, you go to patreon.com forward slash The Squad Room. And you can select a donation in the amount of your choice and for how long you want to continue. It really helps us cover uh, expenses for the show, helps us expand the reach of the show and what we're doing here. Andy is one of the guys who is the one. And when I talk to Andy and when I talk to people like Andy, I feel like one, I'm one of those nine. And we've talked about this in episode 79. So if none of this is making sense, go back and listen to that first. But of 100 men... Ten shouldn't even be there. Eighty are just targets. Nine are the real fighters, and we're lucky to have them, for they make the battle. But one is a true warrior, and he will bring the others back. Andy is one of those guys. He is the one. 
when I talk to him, I feel like I am one of the nine. I am giving my input, I'm giving my best, and I'm trying my hardest. But there's another level that I can attain if I work just a little bit harder. And I love talking to guys like Andy who can help me try and reach that level to be the one. Until next time, do your best to be the one. Take care of each other. And stay safe.